0: Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years. And hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. I've been outdoors more than I've been indoors the last two weeks and having a grand old time in my gardens. How about you? This is that time of the year where all of the dreaming you did over the winter starts to actually take physical shape. Watching those plans become reality is highly satisfying. We've had some big shipments of bare root plants arrive, and we are working hard to get them all into the ground as quickly as we can. So on to the big news. Hugger is back. She has just returned to her home range in Bracebridge, Ontario. She returned very close to the area where she was tagged by Laurie Goodrich's team from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary last August. We'll be watching closely to see how she does this season. Will she find a mate? Will she raise a nest of young ones? It will certainly be exciting to see what happens next. Now on to our special guest. Today we'll be speaking with award-winning author David George Haskell about the evolution of birdsong. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. My next guest is an evolutionary biologist from Cornell who has written four incredible books on nature and evolution. It was, quite frankly, difficult to choose just one for our interview, and I'm hoping he will be willing to come back in the future to talk about his other wonderful books. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction, takes us all the way back to the beginning of Earth's history. The author chronicles the emergence of sound in the natural world and leads us all the way to modern times. We are fortunate to still enjoy and connect deeply with many primal sounds today. But the author's big question is, for how much longer? And now I'd like to welcome David George Haskell to the show. David, I'm so glad you could join us today.
2: Thank you very much, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Your book, I just found it astounding. I could not put it down. I had so many emotions as I was reading it. I know in the book you talk about the sounds of nature, but could you also address what you bring up in the book, which is the value of listening? What can we gain from learning to listen to not just birds, but nature in general?
2: Well, thank you for those very kind words. And yes, I hope that the book is an invitation to deeper listening, maybe wider listening, listening connected to curiosity for all sorts of sounds. And those include the things we would normally think of as natural sounds, birdsong and insects and whales, but also the sounds that people make. So human music, I think, is a deeply ecological experience because we're hearing the voice of a particular species of great ape, namely homo sapiens, humans, and often in relationship With wood and bone and animal skins. And we tend to hide that away in musical education. But as a biologist, I'm struck by how much human music, instrumental music in particular, is tied up with the ecology of the world. And so by listening more closely, we can discover some of the stories of the world, of course. So when I'm listening, for example, In the springtime, to all the different birds migrating through and arriving, I'm thinking not just about their identity as species, but what each individual might be doing and conveying through its song. And also, how all those sounds relate to stories from deep time. How did North American wood warblers or sparrows get here? Why do they sound so different in the forest compared to the birds out in the prairie or to the birds that I've heard singing on different continents? So listening draws us into sensory embodied relationship with the present moment, which I think there's value in and of itself in doing that. But it also reveals some of the stories of connection and kinship with other beings.
1: So now in your book, you describe how there was very little sound on planet Earth for the first 2.5 billion years. What happened at that point?
2: Yes, very little communicative sound because, of course, right from the get-go, there were crashing rocks. And then when water formed, when the Earth cooled down, there's been the sounds of waves and of lightning and of water flowing. And that's one of the delights, I think, of being near rivers or streams or the ocean is we're hearing primal sounds, sounds that have been sounding out on for billions of years on planet Earth, and we can still be in their presence, not as fossils or as memories, but actually lived experience. Then for the first few hundred million years of animal evolution, there's no evidence of any communicative sound. And before that, before animals evolved, there were single-celled creatures and bacteria and protists. And although they make sound, there's no evidence at all that any of them sing or call in a way that is intended to communicate the signal to another being. And in the animal fossil record, it isn't until about 270 million years ago that we see the first physical evidence of sound-making devices. And these, in the terrestrial realm, are little ridges on the wings of insects. And these are fossils, so memories encased in stone of some of the first creatures that would have made communicative sounds. So these were insects that sung in a way that's analogous to how crickets and Katie did sing now by rubbing their wings together. In the oceans, likely that crustaceans and fish were making songs a few hundred million years ago. But in terms of evolution, those are actually quite late dates because animals first evolved you know 650 million years ago, maybe even older than that. So for hundreds of millions of years, there were fish, there were terrestrial arthropods, there were crustacea, that as far as we can tell from the evidence left in fossils, had no physical ability, no physical structures that would allow them to make sound. And that's a bit of a mystery. It could be because it was perhaps too dangerous for those creatures to make sound, and it wasn't until they evolved flight, as the winged insects did, or other means of escape that sound making became possible for those creatures. And we can hear these differences even today. I mean, think about frogs that of course are very vocal compared to salamanders, which are entirely silent. Well, what's a big difference between those? Frogs can jump away from predators, whereas salamanders, a salamander that croaked or sang would be drawing attention to itself without any particularly good means of escape or defending itself. So the effects of predation may have delayed the evolution of sonic communication on planet Earth and still shape it to the present day.
1: Which leads me to my next question. How did song evolve in birds? Yes. Well, of course, in, in modern soundscapes,
2: birds are one of the great marvels of sonic diversity, sonic creativity, expressiveness. This is true all around the world. And birds first evolved because birds are a kind of a dinosaur and they first evolved into a form that we humans, if we could travel back in time and see them, would think of as bird-like, maybe about you know, 155 million years ago when creatures like Archaeopteryx were winging their way, perhaps gliding from tree to tree or from trees to the ground. They had well-developed feathers. They had relatively small bodies. They could probably use those feathers for at least short periods of either gliding or, or powered flight. And... These first birds then evolved into all sorts of forms, some that were like sparrows or starlings, others more like ducks, others a bit more like birds of prey. And yet, as far as we know, these early radiations of birds did not sing the way modern birds sing. So these birds also look strange in that they often had little claws on their wings and they had teeth in their beaks. So this is like an entire parallel universe of bird (laughs) diversity for About a hundred, nearly a hundred million years. And then at least among some of the birds, and these are the birds that then gave rise to the creatures that we have around us today, some lineages of birds then evolved the special structure that modern birds use to sing, and that is the syrinx. So as I'm speaking to you now, I'm using a voice box, I'm using my larynx, vocal folds, and that's a similar structure, although the, the details differ among groups, that Reptiles would use or amphibians and other terrestrial vertebrates. And it's likely that the early birds made hissing and and wheezing sounds, maybe booming sounds, echoing things in their long necks and, and throats, the way some reptiles still do today. But modern birds sing with an entirely different structure buried deep down in their chest. At the confluence of the bronchi, there is a structure called the syrinx, That is comprised of little membranes in the air pipes, if you like, with, depending on the species, sometimes dozens of little muscles all around the syrinx that can tug on the outside part of the syrinx and reshape the membranes, reshape the form of the syrinx, which is partly enclosed in in cartilage, to produce the extraordinary sounds that we hear today, like sparrows doing virtuosic songs where they're changing the sound they make multiple times every second. So that syrinx buried right down deep in the chest is found only in modern birds. And the first fossil evidence we have of that is from about 66 to 69 million years ago, a species called vagavis that looked somewhat like a duck or a goose. And the three-dimensional structure of the syrinx that it had deep down in its chest is also duck or goose-like. So this is a creature that probably couldn't trill and chirp it was probably honking. So in terms of the soundscapes of the ancient world, it wouldn't have sounded particularly remarkable. The remarkable thing though, is that this group of lineage of birds and and some of its relatives that had this innovation, the syrinx deep down in their chest, was some of the only birds to make it through the great calamity that happened about 66 million years ago when an asteroid hit planet Earth and wiped out almost every forest standing on the planet, caused massive die off among the birds. And probably about 90% of the birds that were around at that time were wiped off the face of the Earth, either within a few minutes after the asteroid hit or in the extreme climate cooling and loss of vegetation and food that followed then in the months and several years that followed this impact. So it was a quite literally a decimation of the bird diversity on the planet. And the few lucky ones who made it through, some of them had the syrinx. And then that syrinx in the tens of millions of years that followed, then diversified into the extraordinary range of singing devices that we see all around us today and can hear all around us from ducks to songbirds, to flycatchers, the whole full range of avian vocal prowess owes its origin to a lucky escape during a mass extinction event. And if we could replay the tape of time, as Stephen Jay Gould used to say, perhaps the outcome would be entirely different, that a different group of birds would make it through, and perhaps the world would not be graced with their song. So when I'm hearing birds and thinking about deep time, I'm thinking about lucky escapes, and then diversification after a calamitous loss of diversity. So right at its origins, the evolution of song and birds involves the evolution of the syrinx, and then after that, the extraordinary diversification for which there are many, many reasons why the different birds sound different. I'll give you one example that, that I think about a lot, particularly in the spring and summertime, is that the nature of the physical environment shapes the evolution of bird song. So birds that live in forests have to deal with all these pesky tree leaves and tree trunks that reflect the sound. And so any sound in a forest as it travels through the woods gets smeared and reflected and degraded as it passes through all that vegetation. So in order to send a clear signal through that, you have to give a relatively simple whistled song that is comprehensible even to members of your own species and maybe other species only because of its its simplicity. Whereas if you're a bird that lives out in open country, you can do all sorts of trilling and rapid virtuosic ups and downs with your song so that it can transmit no problem because there aren't many sort of vegetative barriers in the way. I mean, out on the prairie, birds have to deal with wind and the turbulence of wind. It's not a problem-free environment for acoustic communication, but it's a lot easier and a lot less degrading of a habitat for sound to be on the open prairie than out than in the woods. So thinking about robins and tanagers, other birds that have these slow whistled songs, they're all birds of, of woodland, compared to lark sparrows and other birds that really get a lot of the grassland nesting sparrows have these very rapid songs. And this isn't true just in North America. You go to Australia, Western Europe, the songbirds in the forest tend to have much slower, more whistled songs. And that's because in a way, the physical characteristics of the forest have imprinted themselves through evolution into the very structure of the song itself.
1: Wow, that is just amazing. So now in your book, you talk about, of course, you know, bird song is so beautiful. And I think birds singing or the songs of birds is what endears so many people to them. But you say in your book that there's a cost of singing for birds. What is the cost for them?
2: There are several costs. One of them is predation cost, particularly for a bird that sings out on an open song perch. That bird is advertising its presence, and birds like sharp-shinned hawks and cooper's hawks can then home in on on them and and prey on them. There's also an opportunity cost, because the time you spend singing is time that you cannot spend eating, so that's another cost. And then there's a physiological cost of singing. And for some birds, for example, in Carolina wrens, there's an estimate that 10 to 25% of the daily expenditure of a Carolina wren, daily energy expenditure of a Carolina wren may be spent on the energetic cost of singing. Now, I should say that there are some other estimates that show that for some other birds, the costs are not quite as high as that. And this is one of the things that I think is important about Acoustic communication is that even though it can be can be for birds that sing really loud and sing all day, there can, can be a physiological cost. In other words, they have to burn a lot of food to produce that sound. Compared to other means of communication, song and sound production is relatively cheap. Because imagine, say, a little wren. You can hear that wren 75 meters away in the forest. That wren is increasing its physical presence in the forest by tens of millions of times because the wren itself is small enough it could fit in the palm of my hand. And yet its presence through its song is in this enormous circle covering a huge area of forest that is quite literally tens of millions of times larger for a relatively small investment in energy. If the bird were to try to produce a scent, say a pheromone, or to produce a visual display that covered as much of the forest. It would be much, much harder, much more costly. And so song, although it does bear cost, also has the advantage in that it is, compared to other means of communication, sometimes less expensive. And it also works in dense habitat, like a dense forest where visual or chemical cues won't travel very far. Or, At night, whippoorwills, other other birds, or in the dawn and dusk where there isn't much light, lots of birds communicate during that time. And then in the oceans, whales and fish and crustacea and other sea-dwelling creatures are often living in the depths or in very turbid, silt-filled water where they can't see more than the body length in front of themselves. And yet they can hear the voices of other creatures all around them, sometimes from hundreds of kilometers away. So sound is costly, yes, but it also has some amazing abilities to communicate almost instantaneously through very challenging habitats.
1: Now, I have to ask you about the drongo. You mentioned the drongo in your book and his 45 alarm calls. Why would a single species of bird have 45 alarm calls?
2: Yeah. So this is the African fork-tailed drongo. A classic study showed that this bird feeds itself partly by stealing the prey and the food that other species of birds have found. And one way that it does this is by mimicking the alarm calls of those other species. You now, Every other species of bird, and, and in fact, some mammals as well, like meerkats and, and other mammals, make an alarm call that when another member of the same species hears it, they immediately drop their food because they think a nasty predator is coming to get them. So if the Drongo is there and makes a convincing replica of this alarm call, the others, members of the other species run away and the Drongo comes down and gets their food. It's sort of like if you're at a restaurant and somebody else has got a nice dish, you pull the fire alarm, everyone else (laughs) runs out, and then you just sit down calmly and eat their dessert or their steak or whatever it is you had your eyes on. It gets better than that, though, because, I mean, the Drongo isn't just making one alarm call. As you mentioned, it can make dozens, up to 45 and maybe more alarm calls that are suited to each species. So the Drongos know the natural history of their environment, and they mimic the alarm call that is suited to the right species. But they also realize that you're only going to fall for the fire alarm thing once, right? Uh, If they've used a particular alarm call on one species and they're trying again, they'll switch up and they'll use a different variant of the alarm call to keep their victims guessing and to keep their victims confused. This is a great example both of mimicry, which, and there are lots of other examples of mimicry. I mean, in North America, the thrashers and mockingbirds are great examples of birds that use mimicry as a territorial and sexual advertisement, sort of showing off, look how many song variants i can learn and look how many i can combine together in in my own dj reshuffle these drongos are using mimicry in a different way and that is to gain food so there's not just mimicry there's also active deception happening during the drongos use of these songs in a way that's not true for a mockingbird as as far as i know mockingbirds are not trying to deceive sparrows or blue jays or other species as they imitate their songs, they're incorporating those sounds for other purposes. But the drongos are a great mimics and they are great deceivers.
1: Well, the drongo is one smart bird. It is.
2: And you know, probably the cognitive abilities required to have that degree of nuance are pretty impressive. Of course, a lot of bird song is also built built in, into the bird's genes so that you don't need as much cognitive firepower to produce songs like a lot of flycatchers will sing their song even if they've been deafened as young baby birds at nestlings and they've never heard the, the sound of their own species they can still produce a perfect rendition of their own song the drongo though is, takes its inheritance which is the ability to listen very carefully in your environment and then to use those sounds in a socially highly sophisticated way, that takes a lot more ability to learn and also to deploy sounds in the right context. So that's all about cognitive ability rather than impressive instinctual use of sounds.
1: Well, very impressive. I think I'm gonna try that fire alarm call at the next yeah. restaurant I go to.
2: The manager might have fallen for it once before, so <laughs> keep your eye on the manager if you're, if you're doing it.
1: I will. So now could you explain to our listeners for a moment, what is acoustic signature in birds?
2: Yeah, well, acoustic signature actually is a term that is used in lots of different contexts. It's unlike, say, the syrinx, which has a particular meaning. Acoustic signature is used in different contexts. So individual birds have their own acoustic signatures. For example, song sparrows. Each male song sparrow has his own variety of song, a set of variants that this particular song sparrow learns early on and then sticks with for the rest of his life. Your listeners have song sparrows in their neighborhoods. You can actually learn to identify individuals by paying attention to the sounds that they're making. Each species, of course, also has its own acoustic signature of the song that it's making, a signature that is largely based in the genetics of each species, mediated by learning and at least some songbirds. And then there are acoustic signatures of whole soundscapes. For example, when the sun comes up, or in fact, just before the sun comes up, in places all around the world, there's a phenomenon called the dawn chorus, which is when all, not all the birds, but many of the birds get extremely vocal. They they just sing and sing and sing, and some of them produce songs that they only produce at dawn and no other time. And so if you look at the fullness of the soundscape. So how many sound frequencies are being represented? How many different timbers and melodies can we hear? How many seconds of silence are there? Or are there any seconds of silence? I mean, in many ecosystems, there are no seconds of silence during the dawn chorus. So this is a measure of saturation of sound. That saturation goes way up just before, during, and after dawn. And then it drops down for the rest of the day. And often, particularly in the tropics, there's another peak in the evening hours as the sun is going down. You can look at the acoustic signature of an individual habitat. For example, compare a primary intact tropical rainforest to a rainforest that has been selectively logged compared to a rainforest that's been totally clear cut and turned into a mine or an oil pond plantation or acacia plantation. And the acoustic signature of the dawn chorus will be completely different in each. And in general, the dawn chorus will be a lot richer, more saturated in the intact primary forest than it will be in forests that have been degraded. And in fact, scientists and land managers are now using these acoustic signatures of entire habitats to assess things like say in a tropical forest or in fact any other forest, if you're gonna do some logging, are there ways of doing that logging that are less damaging to the biodiversity than others? So for communities say that live in and around forests, logging is often one of the few ways that people can put bread on the table. How are you going to achieve that end without doing too much damage, particularly in tropical forests, this is a really key question because paradoxically, selective timber harvesting is potentially one of the ways in which we can protect forests. Because in the case where you can't do selective logging, well, the other options are just clear-cutting the whole thing and turning it into agriculture. So if timber companies can stay in business, that actually holds off the possibility that the entire forest will be cut down. So conservation groups are interested in comparing the effects of different types of logging on the habitat that they're studying and trying to protect. And one way of doing that is measuring the acoustic signature of the habitat, which includes a lot of birdsong, but also insects, frogs, and in the tropics, primates, all the other vocal creatures can be captured by sound recordings.
1: Well, that really spoke to me in your book. I found your book somewhat of a cautionary tale as well. If we keep destroying habitat, especially at the rate that we're going, destroying habitat, are we prepared to live in a world with no birdsong or very little birdsong? I can tell you quite frankly, I am not.
2: (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, that's the question for us. As a very powerful species now, humans have the ability to make that decision for better or for worse. And I think one thing that listening can do is tap us in both locally to our local environments, but also allow us to understand the effects of our actions, say, as consumers and as voters and as citizens, when we are either protecting or degrading habitats at home and then also overseas. And so, of course, the environmental crises require lots of different action at different levels. but. That action is unlikely to be wise and well-guided unless it's also accompanied by a practice of careful listening, quite literally opening our senses to the sources of information and of connection and of joy and of embodied kinship that come through the practice of paying attention with our ears or, you know, for some people who for whom hearing is either not easy or not something that really resonates with them through our other senses, the sense of touch, vision, aroma. There are lots of other ways of of connecting. And of course, sound is just one of those.
1: Now, I read something in your book I found a real shocker. I know when you read Natural History of Birds, it's usually the male bird that gets credit for singing, but you're saying 70% of songbird families have females that sing.
2: Yes. So this is a bias that has emerged, particularly because a lot of ornithological science first, at least as it's practiced in the Western world, was done in Northern Europe and some parts of North America where indeed much of the song that is produced, say during a dawn chorus is coming from males. And then that fed into this bias that well, it's just the males that are singing. Well, even in those habitats, if you actually listen carefully, you will hear that females of many species are also singing. So they are communicating using their voices. And then away from north america and northwestern europe in the tropics in australia many parts of africa asia both males and females produce song and this is at least 70 percent of bird families have female song well documented within them and more than that if you trace the evolutionary tree of the songbirds it seems that the ancestral condition for singing in birds was that both males and females were singing. So the whole idea, which Darwin then perpetuated, and he had some amazing ideas. I'm, I'm not trying to, trying to diss all of Darwin's over, but I do think he got one thing wrong, and that was his overemphasis on the idea that males are the singers and that females are just silent and are listening. And that's just not at all what is happening out there in bird communities.
1: Wow, my brain is smoking right now. That's a lot to process.
2: I mean, of course, people use nature, birds, as a way of guiding human morality. I think that's a horrible way of organizing our philosophy, but because we need to derive our ethics from somewhere other than birds and other creatures. But when people say, well, the males are the vocal ones and the females should be silent, well, that then comes a reinforcing factor for sexist approaches to human culture. For example... The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is 90% males. The canon of Western classical music is mostly males. To this day, most conductors on orchestra stages in the U.S. are men. And it's not just the fault of naturalists who got something wrong about song. but I do think that the way we think about birds and talk about birds then is both a mirror, but also a shaper of how we think about ourselves and what is natural or normal within for humans.
1: Right. So evolution continues as well as our ideas about the birds.
2: Yes. And, you know, and of course, the ethical question for humans is cultural evolution continues. And in a way it's sort of, for ethics, it's almost irrelevant, not entirely irrelevant, but almost irrelevant what nature has wrought. If we decide that both men and women should have equal voices, for example, have the vote and not be told to shut up, then that is an ethical principle that it really doesn't matter if male or female cardinals are doing most of the singing. That is an ethical principle that we've derived from a commitment to the equality and dignity of all human beings. And so this is a place where biology and ethics need to be in more careful conversation, I think.
1: Right. So now I just had a question for you about fledgling birds. How do they learn the bird song of their species?
2: Yes. Well, it turns out in different ways. So I mentioned earlier that some species, in fact, many species of birds don't need to learn the song at all. It's basically encoded within their genes the same way that the songs of insects and frogs, they're just born knowing how to do this. When the right hormones hit, they can produce the sounds which is a pretty amazing thing in terms of developmental biology and genetics. And we still haven't teased out exactly how all of that works. But in some species, particularly some songbirds, North American wood warblers, sparrows, thrushes are great examples of this. They learn their song partly by listening while they're still nestlings in the nest and remembering what they heard from their parents, but also from neighboring birds, and then either through the rest of the year, or sometimes in the next spring, they use that memory to then refine their own vocal production and throw out the kind of the garbage and crystallize down to, and I love that verb that is used in the ornithological literature because it implies through crystallization that you're producing a jewel, a crystal, a beautifully own way of producing sound that is analogous to a, a jewel that catches the light. And so when we hear a mature wood warbler or sparrow, for example, making its song, what we're hearing is the end product of a process that involves the interaction between the bird's memory of what it heard in the first few weeks and months of its life, in interaction with vocal production, which is the bird practicing its song and sometimes coming out with its own variants along the way. And sometimes shaping the song so it fits in with the neighborhood in which it is now living. So many sparrows like to match the song that they're making at least somewhat to their neighborhood so they fit in in a way that is loosely analogous to human accents, right? As kids grow up, they pick up an accent, and often it sticks with them once they hit adulthood. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm an example of that. I've lived in the U.S. over 30 years, but I retained something of a British accent although people in Britain say that I don't. (laughs) My accent is basically a mess. But I learned how to speak early on and as a young adult. And that's stuck with me through all these years in the same way that a sparrow learns much of its song early on and then that sticks with it through its life. There are exceptions, though. We mentioned the Mockingbird that can continue to learn and pick up songs all the way through its life. So there's a, a more open receptivity to learning in that particular species.
1: So as we wrap up here, can you tell me what do you hope for in the future in terms of sound, evolution of sound in nature, particularly in birds?
2: What I hope for is, and what I'm trying to achieve through this book, one small contribution to this hope is for people to open our ears again to the voices of the living earth. And birds are, of course, a very significant portion of that voice of that great song coming from the earth. Not only because we need to do that to be good and responsible neighbors and managers of land, but also because it's a source of a renewal of joy, of connection that I think we really, really need. So many of us feel anxious, depressed, alienated from the world in some way. And the simple act of listening to the birds around us as we travel or in in our home places can reconnect us through our senses back into the relationship that our ancestors had for hundreds of thousands of years. If a human being 100,000 years ago wasn't listening or paying attention to its environment, that person did not manage to live very long because they weren't finding food or staying away from predators. They weren't in tune with the information they needed. These days where so many of us live in front of our screens and indoors, we still need to be in tune because, of course, we are having huge effects on the diversity of life on the planet. If we do listen better, I do think we can do a better job of sustaining the glorious diversity of sounds and the creative processes, whether it's learning or evolution that produced these sounds and will continue to evolve them for another few billion years, as long as the planet is still around.
1: I'd like to thank David George Haskell for joining us today. You can find his book, Sounds Wild and Broken, at local bookstores, as well as Amazon.com and the Barnes & Noble website. The book is now available in hardcover and softcover, as well as ebook and audiobook
0: form join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.